getting the company into a, a spot where it's marketable, uh, that takes time. You can't just flip the switch overnight. And like we had talked about earlier, once you sell your business, you're not going to just walk away with everything. More often than not. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business Podcast, episode 115 here. And today's guest name is Ryan Turbis, who is a CPA manager at Boulay Accounting Firm here in the Twin Cities. And he has a ridiculously good track record of some very interesting projects where he's done due diligence and financial analysis for private equity funds, search funds. He does a ton of work for strategic buyers that are doing acquisitions and has just a ton of good information to share with us. And Ryan and I's track record and relationship goes back before we were actually talking about M&A and we went to college together and lo and behold, we can do more than just drink beers together. We can actually talk about some really interesting stuff, which is now spreadsheets. But the reality is, in all seriousness, Ryan and I had some really good conversation. He's been on the buy side of a lot of transactions and he has a very unique perspective because he's been getting more into the sell side. And we really want to dive into as the second part of this series in the second episode of this three-part series is that we want to know for you, the seller, how much will you actually make? Because as we talked about with Brandon Hall, a business valuation is all top line. How the deal is structured, how actually the, the net proceeds are calculated, when and how you get your money is a completely different thing. So what we're going to do with Ryan in this episode, a little bit of a refresher about how to value a company from his perspective on the finance side and the, and the tax side, understanding the multiple EBITDA, he gives a little bit more of a refresher and explanation of the EBITDA and the multiple and how that's calculated, but then really talking about deal structures, fees, how that works, when and how you get your money, the tax ramifications of all the different things to consider. He gives even some of his advice from a buyer's perspective. And if he was a CP in the buyer's team, what are the things that he's going to be looking for? And we really just try and boil it down to here are the things that are going to matter to you, the owner, who's going to eventually sell their business and what you need to think about in order to get the money that you deserve. Because once you have determined which exit option is right for you, whether it's a private equity firm, whether it's an internal sale, whether it's a third party or whether it's an ESOP, then the only thing that matters for you is how much money you put in your bank. All the other stuff is irrelevant until you get your money. So hopefully this gets you where you need to be to level up the playing field, to talk the talk with some of these advisors or a potential buyer that's really trying to push the deal structure or the tax structure into something that's more advantageous to them versus you, because there's a direct correlation between things that are usually good for the buyer are not as good for the seller. So as I had mentioned in the previous episode, and I will again in the following one, which will be an interview with John Warlow about the eight key drivers of value. There is a link in the episode show notes about how to get your eight key driver survey, get a score on where you're at in the eight key drivers. There's also a link to Biz Equity, which is a software system that'll get you a business valuation. It's not a certified one like Brandon was talking, but it's something that'll give you a benchmark. But remember, if you take the business valuation, that's not how much money you will walk away with, which is why you need to listen to this episode with Ryan. So without further ado, here is an episode on tax net proceeds with Ryan Turbis. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. 
Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Ryan, what's going on? Oh, just uh, living another day in the office, enjoying this lovely uh, fall Minnesota weather that came on us in about uh, 10 hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, and as you and I were just talking, uh, you are a big hunter as am I. You are definitely above and beyond because you looped in your uh, significant other into <laughs> the trade as well. So you guys have a lot of, uh, a lot of events coming up that is, is going to be new to manage with your little one that you got at home. <laughs> Yeah, it certainly changes things and you know, you get into hunting over 30 years and then your wife gets into it in a matter of one to two years. It tends to add up and then you add the, uh, the kid cost in there, as you well know, is, uh, is pretty material. But it's, <laughs> well, it's you just got to throw them in the, in the blinds with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> what, what, kind of, what kind of uh, cribs and, uh, and car seats are, are insulated like that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And soundproof. Well, I'm looking forward to having you on the show. You and I, you know, for the listeners, we, we've known each other for a long time, went to college together and we both found out that, Hey, my gosh, we're both kind of doing some of the same stuff. And, uh, we not only can we drink beers together, but we can also talk about spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah. Riveting stuff. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Riveting stuff. But you know, so for the listeners that don't know you around, might maybe just give them a little bit of a background of, you know, your specialty and then how you got to what you're doing today and what kind of consists of your main activities. Sure. Uh, so I'm currently employed at uh, Boulay, uh, public accounting firm in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Uh, we have uh, three offices, one in Naples, Florida, one in downtown Minneapolis, and then the Eden Prairie office. Um, and really what I, what I enjoy doing most being a public account is just helping people solve their problems, whether it's uh, tax related problems, financial problems, and really over the last uh, four to five years, the transaction side of things, which all encompassing, um, there's a lot to consider with the transaction side. Um, and that can be a very stressful and yet very important time uh, in a business owner's life. Um, so I, I enjoy that side of it. I like the hard and fast environment that is transaction services. And I, I thoroughly enjoy trying to help um, whether it's uh, I'm representing the buyer or seller, uh, kind of walk through that process and uh, try to smooth things over for them so they can ride off into the sunset. Well, and what what's really cool about when you and I started uh, having these conversations is, you know, under with your background on audits and really understanding the, the financials of these companies, it really naturally uh, translates into then valuations and what is this asset worth to someone else and what are the different options and now you guys have a really cool spread of different services at your company, but, and, and what, what percentage of your time for the listeners? So, cause I think it's a unique perspective too, is uh, buy side versus sell side on the, the, the tax side. I will say that it, it's been changing. So I, I'll say uh, three years ago, it was probably 90% uh, buy side, whether we're rep representing a private equity group, family investment office or search funds. Um, and that, that has started to shift uh, since three years ago. Uh, it's probably more like 80% uh, buy side, 20% sell. Uh, but I, I, going forward, I see that relationship uh, maybe moving closer to 50-50, especially as a lot of our, our current clients and prospects, uh, the baby boomer generation reaches that retirement age. And there's going to be a lot of turnover in companies, as you well know, in the next, uh, we'll say, five years. 
It's pretty crazy, man. And that's what we were talking about this. Like, even since we sold our business in 2014, I mean, it's the chatter's going on and you hear a lot of these people going, what, what, what do I do now? <laughs> and, right. and, you know, because you're the natural finance people and, you know, people probably just, it, it's a natural conversation going, okay, so what next? <laughs> and so right. you, you're going to be pushed into a lot of that stuff. And so, and I think what the reason I wanted to ask, I want uh, the listeners to know that because I think your perspective on the buy side is super intri uh, intriguing for the listeners as well because it's a way different. I mean, it's the same transaction, but it's a way different thought process because you're trying to understand the risk of the purchase and how to mitigate the risk versus the seller. You want to do the opposite. So I think you're going to be able to shed some light that is going to be crucial on the how does this whole thing get structured and what's the tax ramification for both sides. Um, yeah. And you know, before we do that, Ryan, I think. What I'd love you to do is give us the your perception uh, and opinion of the difference between a normal CPA and an M&A CPA. And the reason I'm asking this question is because I had some major issues in this area when we sold because we left a lot of money on the table from this specific topic that we're going to get into close to, you know, almost a million and a half, a couple, a couple million bucks from deal structure, tax ramifications. But I think a lot of the people, like we were just saying, they, they're business owners and there's millions of these business owners out there, right? And they have these relationships with their CPA that they've had for a long time. And they naturally just ask the CPA first because of their relationship on the numbers. But there's a humongous difference between an H&R Block CPA. Well, they're not even CPAs, right? But versus like what you're doing. <laughs> so, can, you know, maybe just, you know, what's your, what's your opinion and how would you describe that to the, to the listeners? Yeah, it's really a, it's really an important question to answer, and I, I will say at first it comes down to trust. Uh, so, with any uh, professional advisor, whether it's your banker, your attorney, your CPA, um, your insurance agent, you have a relationship with that individual, and they've been it's probably been a successful relationship uh, over the years. So, it, it certainly makes sense for you to go to that individual, whether it's at a, a regional, national, or even a sole practitioner firm. To say, hey, I'm, I'm kind of going to be going through this transaction and I'd like for you to help me. And that, that can be a good conversation to have. But I think one thing to consider on a normal CPA versus an M&A CPA is an, a normal CPA uh, is more of a historical uh, CPA. So they're kind of um, producing tax returns and financials and helping you with any maybe historical analysis. There, there are some very good CPAs that do um, anybody can do that historical work, but they try to get you to uh, think ahead a little bit. That that's where you can really stand out and add value and, and gain that trust of of your clients. Um, but the, an M and A or a transaction CPA is is very unique in that there's so many things to consider from a deal structure mm -hmm. perspective um, to normalizing working capital and EBITDA and, and we could go on and on to just say, well, there's a lot of unique things that we need to consider before we even go to market, before we even consider going to market, what can we do to increase the value of your company? So when you get to market, you're, you have this well-oiled machine and, um, you can reap the benefits. Well, and I think it, you hit on a lot of good notes there that we're going to end up peeling apart. But you know, there was a there's a there was a gentleman that was on my show, Todd Ganos, and this guy is like absolutely like like an assassin. <laughs> I think he read both the House and the Senate uh, tax 
books back and forth before it was even approved. And, wow. But the, you know, yeah, right. He, that's not repeatable. But, you know, my, my point, what, what he said at one point, Ryan, was the difference between some, someone that's doing what you're doing that should be on the, on the team versus like a normal CPA that's just doing tax returns and audits is there's, you know, there's so many things to peel apart and you don't want this person to learn on your dime. Because if, if you've done hundreds of these, you know where to look, what tax code to reference and how to structure it in this specific situation versus someone just learning on the fly. Because one specific, you know, election like I've brought up before, the 330 H10 changes the whole game. You know what I mean? And that's, you just don't know that unless you've done it before. So I think there's just a, there's a ton of weight that I want to put onto that. Yeah. I, I mean, there, we could talk for hours on a lot of these things and <laughs> hopefully in the next uh, half hour, 45 minutes, we can cover a lot of the topics so uh, people can get a good understanding of why you need a transaction CPA. So what we're going to do then for, for the listeners here is we'll, we'll, uh, because of our last episode was about valuations, we dove in a lot of that on the certified valuation front, but coming from uh, you know Ryan's perspective and the CPAs and the tax, I want to understand, I think we, you know, Ryan, you've got a unique look on EBITDA and valuations. We'll kind of tee up into that and then we'll go into kind of how it's structured and literally what matters to everybody's like, how much do I walk away with and when do I walk away with it? Because that's the most important part. And I think a lot of the owners, it, it, like a lot of business owners think, okay, oh, I got this, you know, $20 million valuation offer. Well, that doesn't mean anything until you get the money. So Ryan, why don't you, let's, let's start with the EBITDA and kind of your explanation on how to get to it and normalize some of the big factors on, you know, cleaning this up so you can actually have like a realistic understanding where you're at. Sure. So EBITDA, for those of, for those of the listeners who aren't certain what EBITDA is, it's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So really what it, what it's coming down to is it's taking our net income uh, for the company and adding back kind of the non-cash items to arrive at EBITDA or EBITDA, which is kind of our free cash flow for the company. Um, as part of a transaction, kind of uh, standard practice is to arrive at a normalized EBITDA number uh, for a number of periods. Generally, it's one or two years historical, uh, whether you're a fiscal year end or calendar year end. And then as well as a trailing 12 months, and I'm gonna use TTM period, um, or uh, last 12 months LTM period. Um, the, the TTM period is, is probably the most common that you see. And sometimes within some of our LOIs, um, the TTM EBITDA is really what drives the enterprise value, in essence, what you're going to get for your company. So they'll take normalized EBITDA times a multiple of 3 to 10, anywhere in that range or higher or lower. Uh, and that's what drives... Uh, kind of the value of your company. Now, within EBITDA, there's there's a, a pretty substantial process to kind of normalize that. So some of the larger things that I'll just briefly touch on to, um, that we generally run into, um, as, as the case with most uh, businesses, there's uh, probably quite a few personal expenditures uh, being run through the business. So that's probably first and foremost, uh, when we go into a deal, we uh, try to dig into the weeds and, and find those ad backs. So the business has been paying for those personal expenditures, whether it's travel, um, meals and entertainment, cell phones, cars, things like that. We add that back. Um, shareholder compensation. Are you paying yourself an excessive amount of wages or not enough? Um, do you have 
the right number of employees in the right positions and are they paid adequately? So we kind of look at the, the fair market value in essence of the salaries and wages for all those, those current employees and if you need to bring in another employee like a CFO. I was going to say, let's give a couple of real examples of that because you know, you and I have so many clients, so many experiences with it. So, okay. So I used to, in, in real life example, I used to go and speaking of hunting, we used to go on a fishing trip every single year to fly a fishing trip to Canada and a South Dakota hunting trip, <laughs> both of which are actually pretty dang expensive if you don't have a business. And, you know, so what are the, you know, the dialogue that you're having with your clients, you know, as it relates to, okay, well, you know, how does this impact my current taxes, right? Because I think there's all those games that they want to reduce their taxes and get all those perks. But then when you say add back, we've talked about it before on the show, but let's say, you know, both of those trips, because we're bringing customers, you know, that'd be $40,000. And let's you explain what you mean by add back and how that impacts that value. Sure. So if the business is paying for it, it's reducing our net income. Okay. Um, for example, um, you use a $40,000 for that hunting trip. Um, that $40,000 times a multiple of five, for example, would be an additional $200,000 of enterprise value for, uh, for your company. So that's why it's important that we can identify what those are. Now, yeah. adding that on top, so that 40 grand goes on top of that 500 or whatever yes. the, the EBIT does. And I think, you know, yeah. to even expand on that too, because you're, I mean, how many people have like a random, overpaid family member. Right? I think that the easier answer would be how many don't. <laughs> yeah, right. um, yeah. My kids are getting paid and uh, you know, it, that's, that's fun to do. You certainly have that opportunity as a business owner, but we as independent accountants have to come in and say, well, is that realistic? And are all the people getting paid salaries and wages? Are those reasonable? And do they have a job description? Well, and I think what, you know, in, Brian, maybe explain how your guys' perspective is on it is it doesn't mean that they don't have to do that now, right? It has just, let's just address it, right? So you're not the big bad guy that's going to come in and tell them, don't do that immediately, right? I mean, that's what this whole exercise is all about. Right. And you can continue to do that up until deal close. Just uh, before you go to market, let's identify those things. So when, um, and this is kind of a, um, if I'm representing on the sell side, you want to identify those things before you go to market because then it should allow for a smoother diligence process, which is very substantial. And uh, you can get some deal burnouts with uh, the sig significant shareholder if they're kind of doing everything mm -hmm. uh, to get those on the table ahead of time. So you know what your company is worth and uh, it'll allow for a smoother uh, transaction. Well, uh, give us your perspective on the, on the buy side too, because Let's say, let's sure. go back to my hunting trip and I say, I don't need to do that anymore. What's the dialogue that you have with your clients and the, and the deal team? So, so really, when we identify them, if they're not identified, when we go into a, a prospective client, let's say we're representing a, a private equity group, uh, that private equity group, we'll, we'll kind of have some uh, formal discussions with them on, on what do they think going forward they're going to need to do from an entertainment perspective um, to kind of keep their current client base. And I'll use an example. We were representing, this was a search fund on the buy side. Uh, there was a client who had this annual chili cook-off and they invited all of their customers to it. 
it was significant dollars, uh, just shy of a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. But they were going to continue to do that because it, it allowed them to get such a widespread notoriety within that industry for having a fun event. Mm-hmm. And it increased uh, kind of their retention with their current customers. So it, it can go both ways, but ultimately it, it depends on what the buyer wants to do going forward. That'll drive what we do uh, from an EBITDA perspective. Well, and I think what's interesting, and we don't have to go down this way long rabbit hole, but you know, so if you and I were going back and forth and we're talking about my company with that chili cook-off, I would argue that you don't need to do that anymore. And you would say, well, we do need to do that. <laughs> and we're, you know, we're going back and forth over potentially a $500,000 on the top line of the <laughs> enterprise value. Right. And then you get down to the willing buyer, willing seller, and you guys end up settling on a price and everybody moves on. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's a good discussion. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but I think it's a, it's a good note. So, you know, as to, to progress the, the, the normalizing EBITDA, and we've, you know, we've had like, some good conversations about this on the show, but you know, there's a lot of other things that go into that, um, like the random expenses and stuff like that. But I think you also have some really good perspectives on working capital and how that is involved in with the valuation. Yeah. So working capital is, is probably uh, EBITDA is very important, but working capital is as important uh, when we're kind of going in either on the buy or sell side. Uh, because as a buyer, if I come in, I want to make sure that there's a enough uh, working capital within the business that I can operate the business uh, uh, through the smooth transaction. Um, so there's where a lot of the work comes in. So we're, we are going to uh, look at accruals. Uh, your revenue recognition policy, is that consistent with GAAP? Um, are there allowances on the books for bad debt? Um, discount allowances? Um, accounts payable? Are you recording things in the proper period? So we'll kind of arrive at a normalized working capital uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. And again, we'll look at that TTM period. Um, but we will also look at, um, this is an interesting thing to bring up that most people know about, but that we do get into instances where uh, people aren't as uh, well-versed in it. So if a company is growing, you don't want to use trailing 12 months because if a company's growing that trailing 12 month working capital number is going to be less than let's say a trailing three or a trailing six month. So if you have a company that is growing at an exponential rate, you might want to look at trailing three month or trailing six month average working capital. Mm-hmm. One, one thing to consider uh, with that said is seasonality. So if your last three months are your busiest time of the year, um, you, you probably can't use the last three months as, as nice as that would be. Then you probably need to look at trailing 12 months. But it, it's certainly something to, to keep an eye on as you work through the transaction. Well, I think it's it's so crazy, Ryan, because like we went through, I mean, we had some pretty, we hired some pretty intense controllers and CFOs and then had to go through all this. It's, we went through our ERP implementation to really, I mean, you have to know, know where all these dollars are coming, but to your point about, you know, a lot of the accounting terms of the accruals and the, pay, the, the payables and all that stuff, but the, when you break it down to the kind of just some basic examples. So for example, we had contracts where we had, where had the ability to bill monthly, quarterly, and annually. And so we build it and then like you were saying, like the um, revenue recognition, like it's sitting there deferred revenue, right? So it doesn't mean that the money is in the bank account. (laughs) So I think there's, you know, for the the listeners, like, and you know, I think what you're doing is like, I mean, it's like almost like forensic accounting. I know it's technically 
not because that's more of the investigative stuff. But I mean, that's pretty much what you're doing because you say, okay, we have a new owner. How does this, how does this machine continue to go? Like, you know, for us, we had 26 cars. Are they going to continue to get paid? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because there's so many moving parts to just, you can't just cut the line right then and there. Right. So how does the, how did, how have you seen the working capital impact the value of the company? And, you know, some of the, the, the uh, questions behind that is because the new person, whether it's a third party, you know, lifestyle buyer, whatever it is, they're going to have to provide their own financing protect potentially, right? Whether it's a bank or themselves. So how do you determine, and then what have you seen on how that impacts the overall value or the different types of buyers? Mm -hmm. So working capital is kind of a separate calculation. So you have your enterprise value and within that enterprise value uh, through the diligence process, if, if a buyer comes in and they have a, a CPA firm that does the, the buying side due diligence, they'll establish a peg, which is a, a normalized working capital number. Okay. And let's say that's a million dollars. Now within typically 90 days after the transaction date, um, maybe the same CPA firm or a different independent accounting firm will come in and compare the actual working capital on the transaction date to that average working capital for the TTM period. So a million dollars in that example. So as of close, let's say your working capital was actually 1.2 million using, this is important, consistent methodologies with how you determine your trailing 12 month working capital. So you have to compare apples to apples. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you set up an allowance or a reserve during the TTM period using one methodology, you have to use that same methodology uh, when determining the actual working capital at close. Okay. Mm -hmm. So back to my example, if it's a million dollar peg and we have a $1.2 million of actual working capital delivered, that $200,000, we delivered more working capital than what was required. So that $200,000 is an increase in the purchase price. Okay. Now, it can go the other way where we deliver less working capital than the peg. So then that's a reduction in purchase price. And generally, these amounts are in escrow. Mm -hmm. um, so they're, they're held back anyway. Now, I did have, and I've seen this more and more, where instead of having an actual working capital peg of a hard number, I've seen a hard number plus or minus a collar of, you know, whether it's $100,000 or X percent. Um, because generally what happens is, as we talked about earlier, willing buyer, willing seller, and there's probably going to be some discussions about, well, I don't agree with your number. And... The other individual says, well, I know it's a good number. Okay, well, let's split the difference. So that collar would kind of help ease uh, those conversations and say, say, well, if it's within the collar, we're good. There is no additional or reduction in the purchase price. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, and then we don't have to go too down the road, but there's also rep warranty insurance and stuff in here that can be used to help mitigate some of the escrows and all that kind of stuff, right? I don't know Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So, and, and for the listeners, we'll, we'll go into that. And the goal is to have another episode on that. But, you know, as we're going, Ryan, like, you know, like, like I was saying is, so let's say we got this valuation that's coming on. What are the ways, you know, and I think, you know, let's say someone wants to take their company to market or to, you know, whether it's private equity or whatever it might be, ESOP or third internal, whatever it might be. What are the ways that they could be uh, like preparing and trying to figure out what is this, what am I actually going to make? Because so many people 
they, they figure that out afterwards or at the, at the altar or when that tax bill comes. So what are the different factors that they should start looking at now? And then how are the different, you know, I mean, that hopefully can transition or uh, lead us into the, kind of the deal structures. Yeah. So th this is a very loaded question and generally, <laughs> Super um, easy, right? <laughs> yeah, if I'm advising somebody, this is generally the first conversation we have. So if they say, well, I want to sell my business, uh, we kind of bring in a, a wealth, uh, wealth management advisor and say, okay, what do you need to retire? And then we work backwards in essence from the net proceeds to see what that company value needs to be prior to taxes because everybody loves to pay taxes. Um, <laughs> taxes is a good thing, okay? It's better than losing money. Um, <laughs> so once we determine what that value is, then it's, well, is the, is the company actually worth that? So then I would strongly encourage you to go through a, a, a valuation. Um, as I think you had an interview last week to kind of go over specifics on evaluation and how those are arrived at. So I'm not going to get into any specifics on that unless... Unless you know, no, we're good. Um, so then from there, we kind of go through and say, okay, um, how can we structure the transaction to make this work? Okay, so um, is it going to be an asset or stock sale? What, what makes sense? What does the buyer or seller want? Uh, and we can get into more specifics on mm -hmm. that here in a little bit. Um, but that's where you start to have the fun conversations because if the company isn't worth what you, it needs to be for you to live your life after you retire, okay? Then the, the discussion quickly changes from oh, we want to sell to, well, what can we do to get it to that value? Mm -hmm. what, what can we do to bring synergistic value to this company and increase that enterprise value so you can live the life that you want to live uh, post-transaction? Well, and this is what's really cool because you and I have worked on some clients together. And as you think about the variables that you were kind of just talking about, and this is what a lot of people don't get is how do you reverse back into that? So Brandon was on the show a few episodes ago to talk and say, let's say we need 250 grand a year for life. And that's, you know, post taxes. So then we say, okay, well, how do we reverse back into that? So you're going to need five plus million dollars liquid in order to get that. But there's a lot of different ways to come up with the cash flow for that. And then there's, you know, when and how you get the money. And, you know, there's the other variables of the different buyers will impact the value of the company. There's the enterprise value. But then, you know, the timing is a variable. But then also, Ryan, you know, that like a lot of people like, and you probably see this, like, I want to sell my company next year. It's like, well, there's only so many things that can be done between now and then. <laughs> so what are we, you know, I think when we look at the, the, the deal structure, there's the legal deal structure and the tax structure that might allow the customer of yours or the owner to the, the listener to say, okay, you know what? There's a way that I can actually make my numbers work because of the net, knowing what the net proceeds are in the deal structure. Because you can squeeze more out of a, a smaller purchase price, you know, uh, figuratively speaking. So let's talk through like, what are the big variables in calculating the net proceeds and some of the big things that people need to start thinking about uh, as far as the structure and what's going to be taxed? Sure. Um, so, so the biggest driver right off the get-go is whether it's going to be an asset or a stock deal. Uh, most sellers want a stock deal. Uh, most buyers want an asset deal um, because then the liabilities, and you can have indemnification clauses within the purchase agreement to kind of take care of that issue. Um, but but an, asset, an asset deal, uh, the, the biggest change between that and a stock deal is you're going to have 
two different tax rates. You're going to have your ordinary income tax rates, which is your federal plus your state. And you're going to have uh, depreciation recapture on your uh, section 1245 or your fixed assets. Okay. So you're going to have to pay ordinary taxes on the depreciation recapture on those gate on those uh, fixed assets based on how the purchase price is allocated. And that's where there's a lot of negotiations um, <laughs> between <laughs> the buyers and sellers because the, the buyers want to allocate more purchase price to the fixed assets because they get generally a seven year life and they can get the tax savings on it faster than they can over blue sky, which is also goodwill. So goodwill for tax purposes, they get to amortize over 15 years. Um, but as a seller, I want the opposite because if, if proceeds are allocated to goodwill, well, that's at capital gains tax rate, which is about a 16 to 20% difference. <laughs> uh, so there's, there's a lot of uh, sticking points within that conversation. Um, well, it, it's so crazy, Ryan, because I think about like, and this is where the, a lot of these sellers and like even what, what I was stuck in with or any of the listeners that are out there thinking, oh, I can just go take this to market. Like you're literally at a disadvantage off the, off the get-go because the, the buyer usually is sophisticated, has people like you going, we're going to smush everything into fixed assets and we're going to do a, a, an asset purchase. And that is both of those are completely the opposite of what the seller wants. Right. Right. <laughs> so uh, explain it. What's, what's just interesting. We, you know, maybe we dive into like the, the depreciation recapture a little bit and the fixed assets because uh, Brandon Hall and I had talked about it on the last um, show where, you know, there's a lot of companies these days where there is a lot of goodwill, which is the people, the, the culture, the processes, all the stuff that you can't, yep. yeah, your brand, your logo, all these different things, which is a really good stuff, which is probably a lot of the reason that you're actually getting bought. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it, and, it, and describe how that the depreciation recapture works too versus that because I think it's important where a lot of people I've, I've even heard deals where they go they, everything's fine and then they look at the depreciation recapture like holy shit I can't do this deal because yeah. you know and and that explain maybe the difference of, or how how good depreciation is and what that does on an annual basis versus you know how that impacts and how that all comes back Sure. So, for example, if if a company is using Section 179 and they are, um, in essence, <laughs> expensing all of their fixed assets as they're put into service, your net book value um, on those assets, so our, what we paid for it less what we've taken for depreciation on that, if your net book value is zero and when a buyer comes in and says, well... <clears throat> there's still some useful life there and some net book value with those assets. So we think uh, they may or may not have an appraiser come in and give an actual value to it, but let's say it's $500,000. Um, the $500,000 is compared to your net book value uh, on those specific assets. And in that example, it's zero. So that $500,000 difference or delta um, is then multiplied by your ordinary tax rates, your federal plus your state. Um, so the dollars add up real quick. So you're looking at $500,000 times, let's, let's use 45%. No. Well, we got some real dollars going out the door here yep. versus a capital gains tax rate of, uh, let's say 
and the, and the and the 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 buyer, the buyer wants it there because they get better tax treatment if it's in the fixed asset versus putting into the goodwill. Correct, because they can write it off twice as fast. Right. So I think it just comes back. You you literally have to know both sides to play the game that much better. And you know, I, as far as like the deals that you see, because I think you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting things out there where the asset versus stock. So everybody probably says, well, why wouldn't everybody do a stock sale? You know, and then can you explain on the tax purposes from a buyer's perspective, the difference and the benefits uh, versus the stock versus the asset? So on a stock deal, um, if you don't do a, a section 338 H10 election, the buyer will not get the step up in basis. Okay. So then there is no, there is no, uh, tax benefit for the buyer on a stock sale. Uh, whereas an asset sale, you get that step up in basis because you're buying assets and assuming liabilities of, of a business. Um, a stock sale we generally see with a C-Corp um, because the selling shareholder uh, does not want hit, to get hit with that double taxation. So a uh, stock sale generally makes sense uh, with that regard. Um, those are kind of the main differences between an asset and stock sale without getting. Uh, well, I think, you know, one, one more layer deep is that if, if the buyer gets to depreciate the asset, cause it's not technically, I mean, they're just buying assets and they get to take the right. tax benefits right where they can't do that with the stock. Correct. Well, and, and so therefore if you think of, and that's, you know, for the listeners who've heard my story, I mean, we didn't know that. <laughs> and then there's this thing called the 330 H10, which, is kind of a meeting in the middle. So can you explain that in the tax purposes, Ryan? Yeah, so a 338 H10 election, I know enough to be dangerous on. So if it is a stock sale, you can do the section 338 H10 election to in essence uh, get that step up and it's treated then more as an asset purchase. Um, so this is where <laughs> the, the document may say it's it's a stock sale, but then you get to the tax matters section, and then there'll they'll be verbiage within there that says, well, they're making this election, so really then it's treated as an asset sale for tax purposes. Now, think about that. You hit, you literally, <laughs> yeah, right, no, but this is the ridiculous, yeah, does your, does your normal CPA who's doing your tax returns know that, right? And that checkbox could save you millions of bucks. <laughs> it's a big yes. Yep. And, and, and is this where, you know, you're, you're seeing a lot of rep and warranty insurance coming in because in the stock sale, you're, you're giving them all of your hidden, you know, unknowns, right? So there's a lot of more prop there's, you're promising that there's not going to be a bunch of stuff come up. So you, is that kind of how you're seeing the rep and warranty insurance come into play? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly going to be a uh, more of a factor on a stock sale versus asset sale, but there are, you know, other ways that you can kind of mitigate that risk. Uh, but it's certainly way more prevalent, uh, in a stock sale. So now, now if we just say, okay, you know, high level, we have an, either an asset or a stock sale, what are other big, so we got depreciation capture from all the stuff that we've bought and then we've taken good tax benefits over the years that are going to come back to us. What are other big things that impact the the actual how much money you get and you've got this um a lot of people if they're if they have a correct cpa mna cpa they do what you call the waterfall can you explain that and like what are the things that they should be expecting if they're going through this sure so a waterfall can be um like reading tax law at first it may be pretty straightforward 
but you can get into the weeds rather quickly and it can get pretty complex. Uh, so we'll just kind of walk through a pretty basic example, assuming there's no uh, preferred returns on anything. So uh, enterprise value is something that we touched on earlier. So once the enterprise value or the overall value your company is going to be sold for is arrived at, um, the, the factors to kind of arrive at net proceeds is kind of as follows. So we add back in the cash uh, that's within the entity. We subtract out any debt that's going to be paid at closing. Um, we also back buildings or equipment or any like, yep. Buildings, equipment loans. Um, if you have an insurance liability, um, where you're paying your insurance premiums over, let's say 12 months. Mm -hmm. Um, also a reduction in that enterprise values, your, your transaction expenses. And that I would say ranges anywhere. It really depends on the deal. So I'm going to give a range here. It's, it, it's anywhere from one to 4% of that enterprise value. Mm -hmm. And that would include uh, investment banking fees, uh, CPAs, attorneys, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then another thing that is a reduction of the enterprise value is uh, any escrow amounts. So what cash is left over, that then is distributed uh, to the shareholders or shareholder of the company. So yeah, we get all this cash in our bank account. <coughs> That's what we have, right? Well, hold on here. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna have to go through a calculation to say, okay, we got our, our net proceeds. Now, what is the tax ramification of that? So there's there's really two components, um, and I'm gonna walk through an example here, Ryan. Of That'd be awesome. A typical deal, okay? So in a perfect world. Um, as a seller, we would get all of our money up front. Oh, and, uh, that happens 100% of the time. Right? Like, <laughs> that's why I'm going to walk through a typical one here. We would walk <laughs> away and ride off into the sunset. Woohoo, thank you very much. See you later. <laughs> well, that's not the case. Um, you, you will get probably a percentage of it down uh, right away, but then the rest of it's probably going to be either contingent or an installment sale, and it'll be financed over a period of time. Okay. And as part of that, you may need to stay on in the company for anywhere from six months to two years to kind of help with the, trans the transition of things. Um, so on the net proceeds side of things, if, if it's an installment sale, so uh, let's say our enterprise value is a million dollars and we're gonna get 20% of that cash immediately so we have $200,000 of cash that we got immediately and $800,000 of it is uh, an installment, okay, an installment note. And you're going to get paid that over five years at, at the prime rate. Okay? And that's just seller's financing. That's just that's, like a contract per deed. Yep, exactly. So and when you uh, go... I was going to say, sorry to interrupt, but can you, and maybe you're going to do this because I think, you know, there's there's the installment, which is promissory note installment, or however you want to describe it, and then there's earn outs and employment contracts and stuff like that. And I don't know, at some point, I just want to make sure that you touch on that because I think there's different ways to structure that, and that there's different parts of the contingency, right? So it's not you're when you're referring to installment, you're saying it's essentially a guaranteed payment, right? Yes. Yep. And we'll get into the contingency side of it because that's uh you know well let's let's just talk about that in a little bit. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> So with, with the installment sale, um, what we do is we take your annual payments, 
subtract out your basis in the company. So basis would be, uh, let's, let's say it's a pass-through entity. What have you paid tax on in the past? So that is a reduction of what you're going to have to owe for taxes. Basis is a good thing. We'll arrive at what your total gain is. So let's say you're getting, uh, of that $800,000 note, you're getting $100,000 in the first year. And your basis in the company is, let's say, $100,000. Well, we would take a portion of that basis and reduce your payment. So let's say you get $80,000 in a gain. So that's that $100,000 minus the $20,000 basis. That gain of $80,000 is multiplied by long-term capital gains tax rate, okay? Mm -hmm. um, that's the principal portion. The interest portion of that note, that is at ordinary income tax rates, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and you just kind of walk through that. So that's how you really arrive at kind of the net cash that I, as the selling shareholder, I'm gonna end up with in my pocket. Well, and even think about that, Ryan, when you're talking about, okay, so this is just a, your $1 million sale, but if you have, you know, when you're talking about those, when you're hitting the cap gains or the ordinary income, if you've got rental income from other investments or other things, that all goes on top of all this stuff, right? Right. Yeah. This is just one specific portion of your income. <laughs> right. And yeah. I think, yeah, it's, it's, so, all right, keep going. Sorry. I don't know if that, no, you're, you're fine. So then how, like, okay, let's say we, so we got that installment in the problem that that's a, a quote unquote, just seller financing, but then there's other things that are also calculated at different rates as well. So you got employment contracts or earnouts or, you know, bonus. I mean, describe how those different factors come into it. Yeah. So if you're going to stay on with the company for an additional, let's say two or three years and you're trying to help grow that company, and if you grow the company um, at a faster rate than 5% of revenue, and let's say that's one of your target goals, well, that would be a contingency, and you would get an additional kickback or additional proceeds once that earnout is met, okay? And that would then increase um, what you're getting for net proceeds, so that's a win-win that's a for everybody. Um, employment agreements, consulting agreements, uh, that's very similar to um, if I go work for an employer and I'm saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to stay here for two years and I'm going to make X amount of dollars in salaries and wages. Uh, that's going to be your normal withholdings and that'll be ordinary tax at your ordinary income tax rates on your individual return. So then Ryan, like, I think, which, which I think is super helpful to note. And so if we think about the buy and the sell side, right. And this is why I think what you and I talked about at the beginning, which is reverse back into what you need. I mean, it's really, that's the simplest yeah. part because if it's 250 grand a year, it's like a jigsaw puzzle with all these sliding, you know, funnels that we can put stuff into. So you, you, you kind of explain all that stuff on the seller's perspective and how that all is, um, where you want to potentially go into different buckets. But so to say, so when you look at the buyer and the seller's perspective and the buyer, you know, what it, can you kind of give the buyer's perspective on where they want to push certain things uh, and how an employment, so if they're, you know, if we're talking about like a million dollar purchase price and that they've got different reasons to push things into different buckets. So we know that you kind of said that, hey, we want to push things into fixed assets, but you know, is there other ways to come up and shore up what the seller wants through employment contracts and all those different things in earnouts where, it, you know, and what, how does that impact the buyer's tax benefits and or cost of the sale. 
Sure. So a buyer is is probably going to want to do uh, more things on contingent basis uh, because they don't want to, if this deal goes south, they don't want to be stuck with this huge liability and not realize any benefit out of it. Um, and then on the, on the selling side, obviously we want everything now so we can ride off into the sunset. Um, so really it comes down to a negotiation piece and that's where it's important. We haven't really touched base on this that you have a good transaction attorney representing you as the uh, buyer and the seller. Um, and that's where they can kind of walk through uh, historically what they typically see on things and what makes sense um, from you. So typically we'll have the team of, well, let's say the team of the buyers, will hop on numerous conference calls and talk about the deal structure and, and what what the sellers want to allocate thing, things to from uh, installment sales, earnouts, employment, consulting agreements, compared to what the other party does. And we talk about those significant impacts and what is the best for our group that we're representing. Well, and, and, and you, you, you hit on a good point too, because if you think about, you know, there's another big takeaway for the listeners is you got to have all these people <laughs> because you, know, you got the taxes, but then how do you mitigate your risk on the legal side? Because I've seen people where like, hey, great. You know, we throw in the last point, like, okay, give me an employment agreement for two years. And the reality is that person's really not going to even work there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or there's, right. there's a consulting agreement where it's like, hey, you just show up for a call or be available for 20 hours this year. You know what I mean? So there's certain ways to get to the dollar amount that you want without, you know, it, it just, it, it's just without having to sacrifice everything or having to just give in because you don't know all the different structures of it. Mm -hmm. And that's where it's important, like we talked about earlier, just real quick, yeah, yeah. Um, is it's important that you have a transaction CPA versus a, call it a normal yeah. CPA, because the transaction CPA knows all the components of the, the negotiation piece of it and can have that uh, speak the language per se with, with your attorney. Super important, right? Versus like, you know, not having a clue of what you, all the stuff that you just said. And, and to throw another layer on top of there too, because I think, you know, uh, you know, without going too much into this uh, this episode, but there, you know, if you're backing into how much money you want, there's a lot of these different things that the more you know, if you know the numbers that you're talking about, then you have options because you've got some clarity behind this stuff. And you know, one thing that I think a lot of people can can take into consideration and open up options whether they want to like try and get it to the internal buyer, but there's no way to make the numbers work because they need to cash flow and there's too much risk, etc. There's, I think, a good opportunity or interesting opportunity because people have buildings. Most of the time, a lot, a lot of time, the owners have a building yes. that's involved in this. So, can you explain? Because we know there's the 1031, all this stuff. How do you, when you're looking at the numbers and the tax and backing into this, what are some of the cool things that you've seen do with their buildings? Sure. So, if if the uh, if the buyer is just going to buy the business and not the building, which can happen, I've seen it both ways. Um, generally a new agreed upon uh, rent agreement is signed probably for seven to 10 years so that the buyer knows that my rent is not going to get jacked up by you who just sold me the business mm -hmm. because you're using that as your tax shelter. Mm -hmm. um, so then you have, uh, when you're going through that net proceeds calculation, that, that would probably be something that we would consider when looking at the big picture yep. um, because that can be a very nice cash flow stream post deal. Right. Um, and then maybe after that seven to 10 years, now maybe the, the buyer wants to buy the building from you. Well, now we have uh, another opportunity to kind of take some skin out of the game 
and uh, get additional proceeds. So if we're if we're going back to that one, you know, a story you're talking about, let's say we've got a building and because now if we're going to be doing a like a, a, a triple lease buyback or something where how are you got a rent and then, you know, even if they're buying it, so you've got all these different, I guess my, my what I'm trying to go at with this, Ryan, is that there's more, there's more variables, right? So you get interest if you wanted to sell it, you got purchase prices, you got rent, and all those things are calculated differently in taxes too that all go drop into the bucket of the 250 grand a year that you want. Right, right. And then really the fun part is, is, is we can just briefly touch base on this, is you can roll uh, via section 1031, you can roll some of your proceeds into like-kind property. So let's say you do sell the building as part of the original transaction price, and you want to defer the, the capital gains on that building because, A, either you don't, you don't need the money now or you just kind of want to spread it out until you're, you're done getting uh, the installment note that we talked about earlier because once you're done receiving that installment note, you may or may not be in a lower tax bracket. So let's defer the gain of that building by rolling the funds for that building via section 1031 into a different building. And then maybe 10 to 15 years from now, when we're in a lower tax bracket, we don't have any wages. We just have maybe some investment income. Well, now let's, let's consider selling the building because we're going to be at a lower tax bracket. Which I think is so huge because when you said the big picture, right? And the big picture is, income over over my lifetime how do i back into all the different variables and you know one of the things that we didn't do which i've said is we didn't do a 1031 exchange i mean we, we had a significant uh equity in our building and if you think about let's say hypothetically had that this seller that you said is a million dollar company but let's say they've got a million dollar in equity in their building they can roll that into a five million dollar building and call it a, a 10 cap i mean that's significant income <laughs> Yes, it is. So if you use that as like a way to help, you know, when you're looking at that, that net proceeds when you first start out, um, where you and I, we could say, okay, you know what, we're going to back into this. You know, you're, if you did this 1031, you could potentially not need as much for your business and then be able to structure everything backwards into that because they've got different sorts of income outside of it. Right. Right. Uh, those are fun conversations to have with clients though, because you're really adding value on, on what they can do with their proceeds and how much they need. So without having a, you know, even more in depth on the difference <laughs> than going down to specific, you know, major tax, tax law is you know, encode what, what Ryan, is there anything that you've seen change since the reform? I mean, I know there's a lot of still what ifs, but we've kind of, you know, we're getting to the second, you know, second wave of this is there stuff that in the, all the different parts of the conversation we've had that you know things that the listeners should be aware of i mean so since since the change um the, i will say when that change came out um almost a year ago now at, at the towards the end of december of 17 that was probably the busiest uh, week and a half of december i've ever experienced <laughs> uh, because of all the changes um, so with that said, I'm not going to get into the detail on, on any of these or a lot of these because quite frankly, it's a whole nother episode or two or three. Uh, so I'll just, I'll just touch base on the higher ones that are probably the most talked about, uh, which, which are usually good things. So the, the first one is individual income tax rates, depending upon what bracket you're in, uh, those decreased by 
anywhere from four from zero to four percentage points. Okay, so generally income tax rates went down for most individuals. Mm-hmm. With that said, there were some limitations placed on uh, certain deductions. Um, I'm not going to get into those because that's a full list of, of maybe 15 to 20 things that changed, but I will say just consult your local uh, CPA to kind of give you the updates on, on what those are. If they haven't communicated uh, those to you already, uh, certainly send out some articles uh, that kind of summarize it for you. Uh, the, the changes affecting the business, uh, probably more importantly, that generally drives the individual's return more so than anything else. Um, you have for C-Corps, this is a big deal. We've had a lot of discussions on this. So mm-hmm. C-Corp tax rates uh, were reduced down to a flat 21%. Okay. So the, the first instinct of a lot of uh, uh, pass-through entities was, well, I need to, I need to change, I need to change <laughs> C-Corp because I'm going to pay taxes at 21% versus my individual income tax rate combined between federal and states, like 45%. It's like, okay, yeah, short term, that, that may make sense. But what's the plan for the future? If we're going to sell the business or exit the business in the next, I'll say, five to 10 years, a C-Corp probably doesn't make sense because you're going to get hit with that double taxation and you're worse off than if you would have just stayed uh, as a flow-through entity. Well, and Ryan, even on that note too, aren't isn't it less appealing as a buyer to buy a C-Corp because of Potentially going to be pushed into a stock. So I mean, there's a, even you might absolutely that you might not even be as marketable. Absolutely, it's certainly part of it. Um, uh, some other things that impact kind of the pass through entities is there's the twenty percent qualified business income deduction um, that's calculated. Uh, some some uh, industries were included in that, and others were excluded. Um, the ones that were excluded: CPA firms, lawyers. The, the ones who don't have very good uh, lobbyists for some reason. <laughs> but ar- architecture firms were included in that. It's, it's kind of a unique in that we're all professional service providers, but architecture, architecture Well, they're building big, big, huge stadiums and they've got some big money. <laughs> they must have the right lobbyists and, and uh, attorneys and CPAs uh, must be a little tight uh, with their wallets. Uh, who knows? <laughs> um, and then just one other uh, kind of big thing. Uh, as it relates to businesses, is bonus depreciation was doubled to 100%, and Section 179 limit was increased uh, to a million dollars. So those are some big and exciting things for businesses, but there's also the, the neg- some of the negative things that we, we really haven't talked about. We could spend a lot of time talking about those as well. Well, and, you know, as we're wrapping up here, Ryan, and, and I've appreciated this has been a, this has been a lot of fun because it's it's a lot of stuff that people need to know, and it was dense. And I'll, you know, if people weren't sitting in front of a spreadsheet or a, a piece of paper, but they might have to rewind a couple of times. But if you were to kind of highlight something that you talked about or something we haven't said, you know, what what would kind of be your big takeaway? My, I'd say my biggest takeaway with with conversations that I've been having with clients is and you've heard this probably many times, is you can never start planning for a succession plan soon enough. So even if you're a 35-year-old, you're a 45, you're a 60, you're maybe a 70, 75-year-old, start planning now, get some ideas out there because it's going to make that process a lot easier. 
So whether it's implementing buy-sell agreements, getting the right advisors lined up, getting the company to a, a spot where it's marketable, uh, that takes time. You can't just flip the switch overnight. And like we had talked about earlier, once you sell your business, you're not going to just walk away with everything. More often than not. Um, if you do, uh, let me know what industry that's in because uh, that, that would be pretty fun to just walk away with all the cash and not have to <laughs> You help, might switch uh, away from being a CPA. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean, surround yourself with the right advisors. Uh, there's a lot of people um, in the area uh, that may or may not uh, have good expertise. So just find those people that you trust and rely on them to kind of help guide you through the process uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a stressful time and we haven't even talked about this and uh, that's a whole other episode for you is, is the emotional side of selling a business. Oh so, yeah. <laughs> being the numbers guy, I can, I can tell you if it makes sense or not from a deal perspective, but getting the, the seller to kind of overcome the emotional uh, attachment to their business uh, is probably the most difficult part it's really well. It's awesome to hear you say that and recognize that even though because the numbers are the numbers and it's black and white, but knowing that this is a human to human situation <laughs> complicates everything. Yeah. So but, no, I've I've appreciated your uh, your time and insights. This is awesome. What's the best way for our listeners to to get in touch with you? Uh, so the best way to get in touch with me is probably my email. Uh, it's uh, Ryan Turbis. So my email is r turbis t u r B as in boy, E-S, at bouletgroup.com. That's B-O-U-L-A-Y group.com. And my direct line is 952-841-3104. That's awesome. And then I, for the listeners, Ryan, I believe is uh, um, uh, going to be putting um, a, like a basic net proceeds calculator and we'll attach those to the show notes if you're uh, I believe you're going to be doing that which we very much appreciate that it's not going to I mean you think about all the, the variables and factors here that doesn't mean <laughs> they're going to be able to you're going to be able to figure out everything but it'll at least give you some uh, some fun fun things to think about yeah it's kind of fun to play with it a little bit uh, by all means it's going to be a very basic model but you know what it's a starting point um, and, that, and that's really all that matters for, for the time being. If you want to get to a more complex uh, model, we'd certainly be more than happy to kind of help you put that together. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you. So if you were running or driving or doing something while you're listening to this, hopefully there wasn't too much financial and tax lingo and numbers running around so you were able to actually follow it while you were doing whatever it is that you're doing. And I'm going to leave this takeaway short and brief and straight to the point. One figure out how much money you need for life. So if you haven't done that, listen to that episode with Brandon Wood about calculating how much you need for lifetime cash flow. Reach out to him, understand how much do you need for life, back into what do you need this business to be worth net and when you need your proceeds and over time. So how much do you need up front? How much do you need over time? That'll give you some really good ideas of what do you have for exit options because internal, third party, private equity, ESOP, all of those will net you different dollar amounts up front. Then you can determine, okay, how long do I need to run this business 
and what does it need to be worth in order to get me to my goals, which is the whole point for that is understanding what your company's worth. So then go listen to the episode with Brandon Hall, which if you have not done that, go take Biz Equity, this valuation, which is the software valuation that gives you at least a top line benchmark. And then hopefully with some conversations here in this episode, you'll have a, a good idea of how to back into that. We can attach the net proceeds calculator in the show notes so you can run some hypotheticals. Then the next logical question is, how do I increase the value of this company to get me where I want to go and to maximize the value of this company? Therefore, it's the eight key drivers with John Warlow, who's on our show next, where we'll be diving into how to maximize the value of your business and make transferable revenue. And in the show notes, we have the value builder score, which will give you a score and all the different eight key drivers and show you where you need to focus on in order to maximize the value of your company. So I hope that was straight to the point. If you enjoyed the episode and enjoy what I'm doing, go into iTunes, give me a rating. Otherwise, stay tuned next week for my episode with John Warlow.